0: We are not afraid of the unknown, we're afraid of the known coming to an end.
1: Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. Ruin Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives.
0: Here's your host, Andy Gray.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to A Congruent Life. My name is Andy Gray, and thanks for joining us on this exploration of authenticity and sharing some stories of some interesting people who are reinventing their lives in some very inspiring ways. Today's episode number 42, and today I am sharing a conversation with Tyson Adams, who started a very interesting social entrepreneurship venture called Jai Coffee House. I'm talking today to Tyson Adams, who created Jai Coffee Roasters. Tyson, welcome to A Congruent Life.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Andy. appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. Glad that we were able to make the connections all the way here between the United States and, and Laos, which is where you are right now, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Laos is a crazy place. Uh, most people don't even realize that it's its own country when I say Laos. They're like, oh, Thailand? And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's quite, the, <laughs> quite the amazing country, actually.
1: <laughs> cool. So uh, maybe just to get started, could you introduce yourself briefly to our listeners?
0: My name is Tyson, uh, of course, and I founded Jai Coffee House over the course of about five years. And I am living here uh, with my girlfriend in a cafe that we have built in the middle of the jungle, essentially, where they actually grow the coffee. And we are impacting a lot of lives. It's actually around 2,200 families that we've partnered up with to help bring their coffee to different markets around the world. And then we take all the profits of our social business and we reinvest them into clean water projects and sanitation education to help them improve their health uh, in the entire uh, community.
1: I love this aspect of social business. This um this venture that you're embarking on really is not just some entrepreneurial thing that you're doing, but it's a, a very, um, deliberate sort of social business that you're embarking on. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the story behind Jai and how it came to be?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually quite a personal story. Um, I decided to leave my sales job in Seattle, Washington, uh, and, take a little venture into backpacking. I'd never traveled before. And so I actually booked a one-way ticket by myself to Southeast Asia. I quit my job after doing sales for a year and I just wanted to go discover whatever it was that I needed to discover. I felt very called to to go. So I, I did a month in Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Uh, and that was actually approaching six years ago, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, and the the actual story of how jai coffee house got started is is more i would say a spiritual awakening for me than anything i uh, i met a friend um and he bega- he he told me about um dream journaling that he had done in the past and he encouraged me to start to record my dreams to see if there were any interesting messages in them and so i began writing down my dreams every day for probably three weeks. And in the process of both writing down my dreams and interpreting those dreams, I started to gain a lot of interesting information and clarity into maybe things that I wasn't really aware of in my conscious life, uh, just flowing through the day. And um, I was in Luang Prabang, Laos, which is a beautiful city up in the northern part of Laos. It's actually my favorite city. And I had a cup of coffee and After it wore off, I uh, fell asleep and I was sitting on this cabana overlooking the Mekong River. It was a beautiful, beautiful sunset. And uh, when I woke, I came out of a dream and I wrote down this crazy idea, which essentially was that I was going to import coffee from different countries in Southeast Asia to Seattle and start coffee stands in Seattle where... Somebody drove up to the coffee stand, Uh, they could see a digital board of um, uh, pictures and videos of the farm that they actually were um, buying their coffee from, and that uh, a portion of the profits would uh, go back in the form of education for those communities uh, for children. And so I wrote this crazy idea down with these drawings and started to do these logos and names, and all of a sudden this dream turned into this mini business plan in my journal. And I decided to go to the internet cafe to see if they even had coffee in Laos. I had no idea. The person that I bought coffee from didn't even speak English. And so I realized that, yeah, they did grow coffee in Laos and it was in the south and I was in the north. And so I, I planned the rest of my, my visa around this this idea and so or this dream and I went down to the south and I rented a motorbike and I drove out into the middle of the jungle and I drove around for three days trying to find somebody that spoke English and finally on the very last day I met a man who re- represented the uh, the JCFC which is the Jai Coffee Farmers Cooperative which at the time was only 10 villages um, but I, I created a relationship with him and uh got back to Seattle after a couple more months of travel and started to work through the idea of developing a social business that would provide education back to the communities in Laos. Um, And so I imported some samples and I tried to figure out how I was going to sell this coffee. And I realized that uh, bringing in green coffee is extremely expensive if you want to get a price break on it because You have to bring in a container load, which is around 80,000 U.S., and I didn't have that type of startup capital. So I developed a relationship with a roaster here in Laos that could roast up the JCFC's coffee and send it to me. And I started doing uh, a program called uh, One Bag, One Book. So for every bag of coffee I was selling in Seattle, uh, we would provide one book back to the community in Laos and the way that I decided to start the business was actually not drive-through stands, um, which were very expensive to start in Seattle as well. But I started doing coffee fundraisers. So I would approach a uh, a basketball team or a church group or a nonprofit that that wanted a fundraise, and I would sell a bag of coffee to them for ten dollars, and they would sell it for twenty. But I would also provide a customized label for whatever their program wanted, whether it was their basketball you know, logo or a church group logo. And then a dollar of our profits, uh, which is basically all we were profiting at that point, um, were providing uh, a book back into the community. And so after probably about a year of building a website and raising money and developing the idea, I uh, brought in a couple tons of coffee and I pre-sold it to all these groups. And We sold it all and it went really well. And then I was able to come back to Laos and we were able to uh, put in eight libraries and eight different schools uh, here in the community that we were working at. And it was a remarkable experience, first and foremost, stepping into the jungle, into these areas where Lao children had never seen white people, and to supply and provide education resources to them. And they had never, you know, ever even seen a book before or experienced it. So that was uh really the beginning of uh, of Jai Coffee House, and when I began the company, it was it was uh, called Live Global. Uh, the word glocal is a made up word, but it means to think global and act local. And yeah, that was kind of the beginning of 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 what now is Jai Coffee House.
1: Hmm. What a great story, and and so many. Um quote unquote, crazy pieces to that of, of stepping out into the unknown and taking a real leap. Uh, maybe first let's talk about, uh, just the notion of quitting your, your safe sales job back in the United States and going traveling. Uh, Where did that motivation come from for you?
0: Um, two things. Uh, there is a book that I highly recommend to everybody listening. Um, it's a book called happiness by matthew ricard matthew ricard is the french interpreter to the dalai lama and matthew ricard wrote a book uh on the scientific he was a phd before he became a monk um, he but before he became a monk he was a phd a scientist and he basically um after becoming a monk decided to create a book and write it and publish it about the scientific and health benefits of meditation understanding what meditation does for the human brain understanding the importance of it and so before I d- decided to make my or I guess buy my one-way ticket to the middle of nowhere Laos or I guess Thailand at the time um, I really started meditating on a regular basis and I really started connecting in with uh, that and I wanted to also come to Southeast Asia to 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 do some meditation and to visit some people that were more skilled in it. And so that was a huge part of the motivation. That was a very awakening book for me, stepping in stuff and uh, being quiet. It was a really wonderful experience. Um, And then I guess the other part, the other piece is uh, my recommendation, which is, uh, you know, I think that everybody, well, there's two pieces to this. My favorite quote and i'll just say my favorite quote which it's a krishnamurti quote um and the quote is is that we are not afraid of the unknown we're afraid of the known coming to an end and it's a really powerful quote for me because i think a lot of people think that it's scary to travel or start a business but really it's not what it's what we're what we are afraid of is letting go of the known which is the life that we have in america the life that we have in the west the friendships, the jobs, the uh, comforts of the Western world, I think that's ultimately what's the scariest, to let go of the things that we think that we are, the things that we think we identify with. Um, And that really, I think, is an important piece of my awakening as well, is, is, is understanding what fear is and understanding what true happiness is, which is more of a state of being rather than confusing it with pleasure or confusing it with you know, the accumulation of material possessions. Um, And then the second piece is I think too many people ask for approval. I mean, I really do. I think asking for approval of your family to do something crazy or to start a business always comes with too many people being skeptical of your decision making or saying that it might fail or that it's not viable. And so I really stopped asking for permission in life um, when I decided to book that ticket, I, it was right before Christmas. I had never spent Christmas away from my family and I wasn't going to ask them for permission or even let them know. I, I, I told them afterwards. And I think that part of stepping out of your comfort zone is, is having an intuitive feeling that something needs to change in your life and stop asking your friends and family what you think you should do and just do it. And then once you've done it, then you can uh, let them know what you've chosen for yourself.
1: That's a great reflection. Thanks so much. I think that you're exactly right. Kudos for having the courage, I guess. I, I'm not sure. The, sort of that intuitive sense of, of trusting both that spiritual awakening that you experienced in the dream journaling that you were doing and being willing to step out and do something quote-unquote crazy because it felt intuitively right and not because it was rationally explainable.
0: Yeah that there's oftentimes nothing rational about the decision making that I've made so far in this journey and I think that that's partly because I have this internal compass pulling me in the adre- in this direction of of serving which ultimately serving is uh directly related to one's own happiness you know if if we're serving only ourselves then we get just kind of caught up in our own selfish pr- pr- pursuits and I think that the the intuitive resonance that I feel to be here and to continue going in this direction, I have no idea what's going to come of it, but it it, it feels uh, it feels better than me sitting at a desk job at Amazon.com in Seattle and and making eighty ninety thousand dollars a year, which is something that I very much so could do. Um, but this is the amount of growth that you get from the experience of. Stepping out of your comfort zone and, and serving is it's intangible and it's immeasurable and it really uh, changes not only your own life but it, it it kind of raises the vibrational frequency of this entire community here in Laos, but also all the people that you know have made up the Jai tribe and who are following this progress. It's really been wild to get people's email replies and Facebook messages. You know, sharing their uh, their just gratitude and all, and also their own vulnerable stories after I've shared my own. So it's it's been wonderful.
1: Whether it was a conscious decision or choice, or it was some sort of mysterious compass pull, why do you think you ended up in Laos?
0: Laos is uh, an incredibly amazing third world developing country the people here are brilliant and they're so happy to see you and to connect with you and 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 i'll tell you a a wonderful story i was doing a water project three years ago and this will paint a picture perfectly for how these people are and we were coming back from putting in a water well and i was just on this is the first one we had put in and i was on I don't know. I was just on some other level. I was so happy. And it was just a a remarkable experience to put in a clean water well for 750 people who didn't have clean water. And we're on the way back from this village and I didn't want to sit in the truck. I decided to sit in the back or stand in the back and hold on to the bar so that I could, you know, just wave at people and say Sabadee, which Sabadee is hello in Lao. And so we were just driving down the road and I, uh, I saw this woman and she was right very close to the road and she was hacking down some weeds to clear out her farm. And uh, she was holding this big machete and she was probably maybe 40 to 50 years old. She's just hacking away and I'm just waving at everybody and I just put one one, one arm out and said, and just yelled it at her. And she she puts her arms up and, and she does it with such excitement that she thinks, throws her machete into the into the air and starts waving with both hands. And I like burst out into like the craziest, you know, two armed wave back to her. And it was a it was a pretty crazy experience. But that's that's one of the things that you just you don't get it in Thailand. Everybody's happy in Thailand and they smile at you, but there's also there's you know, they're a tourist country so they're used to seeing uh, what they call Falong, Falong as a white person, but here in Paksung, you know, Janelle and I, we are one of maybe ten groups of people that live here that are, you know, from the West, and we're we're only one of three white people. The rest are um, other people that are working in the coffee industry, uh, mainly Indian men, um, and so we're really kind of a novel thing for them to see us and to recognize us on a daily basis and to be here. It's we're it's pretty remote. It's pretty cool to to be here and for us to go to the market and for you know to find a a woman that, you know, she speaks a tiny bit of English, but she gives us good prices and so you go back to her and you buy your onions and your bread and your eggs and your coconut milk from her every day because we've created a bond and she 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 sees you and you see her, and it 's not like this just transaction where in Vietnam and Thailand a lot of the um, the interactions between you and and uh and and the tourists it 's transactional because they 're trying to sell you something and I think Laos there's a greater opportunity to form uh, a little deeper relationship uh, it's, it's It's quite a brilliant area. I love it.
1: Those are some marvelous images. I love the image of the woman throwing the machete up in the air. That's great. Yeah,
0: it was crazy.
1: (laughs) I love sharing stories like this of, of people going off and doing these quote unquote crazy projects. And one question that often comes back when telling these stories is, oh, yeah, well, but... I can't do that because whatever. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the practical aspects of how you made that happen? How how did you go from this dream and trusting this dream into actually being in Laos and starting Jai Coffee
0: House? For sure. So we brought in uh, three tons of coffee and sold it, and everything went really well. Uh, we had some cash flow for the business to start to, to grow. And then I ordered another batch of coffee, and – um, fortunately, it was a really bad situation. The guy that I was buying coffee from, he was a, an American living in the capital um, of Laos, which is Vien Shen, And he was buying from our farm, uh, the JCFC, roasting there and then sending the coffee to me. And uh, the second order, he sent me some wonderful samples. And then uh, he actually was in a I don't know. Maybe he was in a financial bad situation, or I'm not really sure. But he basically purchased all of the broken beans from the JCFc because uh, when when coffee is processed, there's tons of bad beans, and those beans all get picked out and thrown away. Um, but they also, if they have a buyer for them, they'll sell them because they, you know, they they need the money. And I don't I don't actually blame the JCFc for for being uh, a part of this. But basically, he purchased all the broken beans, sent me really good samples, and I bought another three tons. And when that coffee arrived, it was actually all the broken beans and really, really bad quality coffee. And so I was essentially ripped off about $25,000, thousand U S which was <laughs> crippling to both my business and personal life because I had invested yeah. at that point about a year, and a, no, it was about two years into the project. So I was devastated and I... I didn't know what to do and I didn't have any money and so I ended up trying to rectify the situation and he wouldn't uh, take responsibility and so we're no longer obviously working together and it was a really really hard time but I formed a new relationship with a coffee roaster in Seattle and so I started supplying from somebody else our margins weren't as good but our coffee quality was was much higher and I was still doing the one bag one book program back to Laos and so uh, we, I was able to do that for another year, um, with a different supplier, but there was a disconnect of course, cause I was, you know, selling Guatemala, uh, let's see, it was Sumatra Guatemala coffee mix and I was supplying books to Laos, which didn't really connect in the mind of the consumer as much. So I knew that I still needed to figure out a better way, but I just didn't have a coffee supplier because of what had happened. And so. So what I did was I decided to form a 501c3 so that I could start to raise money to just do philanthropy projects, you know, libraries and water projects and that sort of thing in Laos because regardless of whether I was, you know, selling coffee or not, they needed a lot of help in the other aspects of health and and clean water. And so we were able to um, to do that and yeah, it was a wonderful experience because the community in Seattle really came together and we were able to raise quite a bit of money. We did a couple of fundraisers, um, over the last couple of years, mainly auctions. And I was able to raise, you know, the first auction, $12,000. And then most recently, um, our auction, uh, we were able to raise $20,000 and, uh, Yeah, they were really, really amazing experiences, but it was also, you know, now I was running a legitimate 501c3 nonprofit, which is, you know, different than before where I actually had a for-profit business that was giving back um, in the form of books. And so as we developed our relationships uh, with the JCFC, um, you know, we kept coming back once a year. So I'd come over for about a month and spend a month here, and we would put in libraries and water wells, and so they started to see us more and more, and started to develop a better relationship, and so finally, after, let's see, this was a year ago, I realized that, well, I realized two things. The first thing that I realized is is that Laos uh, doesn't really have... eh, a book culture they're more of an auditory culture they sing songs and they don't really have books a part of their process and so these remote villages um you know they speak a different indigenous language than lao and so they couldn't even read the resources and so even though it was really amazing for them to to get these books and resources for the first time the the actual teachers didn't know how to implement them into the community and they were actually uh, not able to read the books. And so it was really uh, hard to measure impact. And the more and more I developed and understood the, the importance of measuring impact in a community, the more I realized that books in this society isn't really the way in which they operate. And so that was when the water projects began to become more important and more important because we realized that diarrhea is the number two killer of loud children under five. And because of that, kids weren't even able to come to school and they're also dehydrated and, uh, suffering from, you know, these issues. And so we really started to change the model of moving from education to clean water. And the, the reason also, is because measuring impact within a village is easier with water. You can go in and do a survey with an entire community, which we're about to do, take baseline data, you know, how many children are sick, how many children are at the school, how many kids are dehydrated, um, and then we can come back six months later, a year later, after we've implemented a water project and provided sanitation education, and we can really see hey have we have we made a, an impact in this community is it a positive one if not where have we gone wrong and let's learn from our mistakes so that's you know one piece of it and then and then the second piece is I'm trying to what was the what was the question again Andy because I, I there was a second piece to this
1: well, it's really about how you're making this concrete in the world. How did how did you go make this happen? And then, kind of where I'm headed with that is, you know, ultimately, what do you want your legacy or impact to be?
0: Yeah, so that's the second piece to this, which is that um, nonprofits are not sustainable when they're small. They really aren't, not only because uh, the economy is you know, if the economy is not doing well, then people aren't donating or or giving as much. Plus, I didn't grow up in Seattle, so I don't really know a lot of adults. And they're usually the ones that have the most money. So the majority of the people that I know are people my own age, and they don't have uh, a lot of cash flow. And so um, the reason, and and this is this thing that I think is really important, um, if anybody is out there listening that runs nonprofits, or is thinking about running a nonprofit, is, is that nonprofits... Are really really damn challenging. If you are the founder of a nonprofit, the majority of your time—and I mean the majority, meaning probably fifty to seventy-five percent of your time—is spent chasing the money. And, and if that's developing a fundraiser, or if that's uh, you know developing and trying to figure out if you can get grants, and there's not a lot of money out there when you first begin because unless you know somebody with really deep pockets it's really hard to organically fundraise and so basically what I realized is that fundraiser a fundraiser in America and then I take that money and I put in a water well you know that dollar has only one life so let's say I need fifteen hundred dollars to raise money uh, for a water project I raise it in Seattle I come here I put in a water project boom yes that water pump lives on and we provide support so that it flows for years to come, but that dollar is gone. And so the concept behind Jai coffee house is raising money through a 501 C3, uh, as a nonprofit charitable organization, but taking that money. And instead of just doing charitable, you know, uh, sort of projects like putting in water wells, uh, instead we'll build, Jai Coffee House, which is a for-profit business, however, 100% of profits, all of the profits, not a single profit can leave and go elsewhere, um, all the profits are going back into the community, into the form of, of that philanthropy or that cause that you're dedicated to. So whether that's, for us, clean water or if, that's, or if it's education or whatever it might be, it's essentially a social business. And social business... Is not a, a new thing that I invented. It's something that I learned from Muhammad Yunus, you know, who pioneered social business and microcredit. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in Bangladesh, alleviating poverty. And so, the concept is really easy. You raise money, and then you develop a business that's a for-profit, so that when, you know, we have customers here at Jai Coffee House that are buying coffee, we can take the profits of that and reinvest that into the community. But that we always have cash flow because we have customers and we have a, a viable business that's actually running itself. Um, and when we began, I was like, okay, great. We will help the J C F C, you know, sell coffee, and then we'll provide water, you know, water um, pumps and sanitation to their communities. But now what I'm realizing is, is the impact we're having here is way beyond the scope of just water. Uh, the JCFC has been around for 10 years, but but what they have is a situation where they cannot have, they don't have voice in the in the global market. They don't have anybody that speaks English. They don't have anybody to market their product. They don't have anybody to send out samples. They don't have anybody to run a website for them. And so what you have is is the buyers that are coming to you know to Pak Tseng, where we live to Laos to the bolven plateau are people that uh are large cor- large corporations or middlemen who want to drive the prices down as much as possible because all they have really is their own self-interest and their own profit you know making their own profit and so the JCFC has been getting you know the farmers are getting less than 2 dollars a pound for their coffee for the last 10 years and they don't have anything that they can do about that because if they have an emergency or a, you know they have an issue where they have, let's say, um, a medical problem and they have to pay for that, well, then they basically sell their future crops and they take out loans so that they can um, have money and cash flow. And so what ends up happening is, is it's a vicious cycle of debt that they really cannot break and they're not getting paid fair prices for their coffee. We have been taking this coffee from you know, from the cooperative and we've been tasting it, roasting it up, cupping it, tasting it. And this coffee should be, they should be getting a minimum of $5 a pound for it. This is exceptionally high grade coffee. It's specialty coffee. Um, you know, we cupped it at an 85.5, which if, you know, if there's any coffee people out there, you know, you know, that, you know, specialty grade is at about 83. So this is really high grade coffee. And there's probably some coffees Uh, that are micro lots you know just one individual family or five individual families where we're probably more like you know 87 88 they're really really good and so the thing that jai coffee house is also doing that we didn't really even anticipate in the beginning is we're able to take a bag of coffee pay them what it's worth which is five dollars a pound roast it here in jai coffee house so not only are they getting a higher price for their own coffee but we're roasting it. We turn five dollars, a five dollar pound of coffee into two hundred dollars because we're selling it to customers and tourists. And then we're reinvesting two hundred dollars, or maybe a little bit less than that, because we obviously have expenses to run the cafe. But a lot of that is profit, you know, maybe 150 US of that is profit for every pound. And that's going directly back into the clean water, into the education of these communities for healthcare. And so the magnitude of the impact we're having is so much greater than what we had even anticipated before when we developed this concept a year ago, and so uh, that's a huge piece. The other piece is that we can send out samples. You know, there's tons of companies in the U.S. and around the globe, uh, in Japan and in other places that really want high grade and high quality coffee, and so by by sending it out to them and 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 letting them cup it. We're going to find new buyers who are going to come in here, and they're going to be willing to pay five dollars a pound, which is, you know, it's more than double the price that they've been, you know, being paid. And it's a huge amount of money that can be, you know, go back into the community. And so, uh, social business, in my mind, is really the only way that I would run nonprofit uh, endeavors from this point on. I am a huge adv- advocate for it, and I. I truly believe that if you want to have a sustainable uh, impact in a community, it's, it's helping them to take their own products and bring them to market and then provide back to that community the things that they need, the things that are desperate and dire to those communities.
1: So now that you've been doing this a while, what would you say are some of the key learnings that you would take and apply to your own life?
0: Well, it's a little hard to say at this moment because my life is so integrated in with my business. Um, sure, but I would say that being an entrepreneur, um, whether it's a social business, a nonprofit, or just a, a straight entrepreneur in general, requires you to learn an exceptionally diverse amount of skills. Whether that's fundraising, I you know I build websites, I do design. Uh, I do branding, you know, I'm meeting with government officials here in Laos. I'm meeting with children. Uh, I'm doing finance. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing accounting. I'm doing philanthropy work. Uh, I'm running a, you know, a nonprofit, managing people. I think that anytime you decide to do this, it becomes a life integrative process like you're married to your business essentially i mean you really are but you you are forced to learn skills and do things that you've never done before and so the diversity of that which i understand now from running a business for the last five years on my own and being self-employed is just amazing because you're you're forced to do things cheap in the beginning you you cannot hire out consultants to do these projects for you so I it's hard to measure <laughs> all the weird small knowledge pools that I have and now of course I'm learning the art of roasting and brewing and serving coffee and then now going into the fields and understanding how to be a farmer and learn how to plant and process coffee run tours I mean I I'm kind of overwhelmed with <laughs> the coffee itself because I I haven't had any experience really being an artisan coffee roaster or brewer but it's it's wonderful it's wonderful to be diverse in your skill set and your knowledge base and when you get to that place you realize that the value that you have is is that you kind of have the full picture of how businesses operate and what skill sets are needed and then if you don't have that skill set which what skill sets can be delegated uh to others who you know excel in that particular field so Yeah, I guess in terms of my own life it's just learning how to manage the balance of life. You know, you have you know, you have your physical life, your intellectual pursuits, your spiritual pursuits, and then your emotional well being and and within those four categories, your life has to be in balance. If your life's not in balance within those four things, within those four categories, then you know, your project's not gonna be viable or it's not gonna really come across clearly to your tribe, the community that follows it. So that's the, that's the most challenging part is the balance. I mean, I've, I've been a rock climber for six years. I had a, I had a gym in Seattle. I'd climb two, three times a week, maybe four times a week. I'm here in Laos. I haven't climbed in two months. My body is screaming for some exercise. And so that's a, that's a major challenge for me. It's a major challenge. I'm, I'm frustrated by it, but in doing so I was like, okay, well, how can I do something different? So I've decided that I'm going to start a Jai Coffee soccer team. It'll be the first white person soccer team, well not white person because we'll obviously have many Lao people on our team, but I'm the first Lao or white person to play in this soccer league and and I haven't played soccer since I was in you know 8th grade. So the reality is is that you just have to adapt your lifestyle to wherever you might be and let go of the things that you define yourself as cuz I certainly define myself as a rock climber, but I'm not a rock climber right now, and that's frustrating. So the balance of life and, and meditation and, and, and staying grounded within your emotional state so that you don't fly off the handle when a builder charges you too much money for construction when you know that he's overpricing it because you're white, you know, like having that balance and your emotional groundedness, is it's it's a challenging, stressful, and also artful process to learn – and kind of have that balance it's it's hard it's really hard the
1: whole point of a congruent life and and sharing these stories is is really to explore these themes of authenticity or congruence so what does living authentically or congruently mean to you
0: um that question is really easy for me to answer um i I don't know if you know her or not, but Brene Brown, she did some TED Talks about vulnerability and, and also shame. And uh, I love her work. She has a book called Daring Greatly that I think is wonderful. And she really uh, encourages people to tell their own personal stories and to live vulnerably. And I, I believe that vulnerability is the space where love exists. And so for me, I use Jai Coffee House, Facebook. Uh, emails, as not a platform to showcase my travel pictures and my life and say, hey, everybody, look at me, look at me. I actually have a different relationship with social media. You know, I, I use it as a place to share my voice and a place to share the challenges that I'm facing and also the successes that we're having. Um, and I really value both in my friendships and in my relationships, but also with, in my own self, the, the process of being authentic within your vulnerability, which is to me, uh, telling your story with your whole heart, which is, you know, that's me stealing that from Brene Brown, but you know, the word courage is telling your story with your whole heart and that's actually courageous it's it's not being this bravado man to go march into the jungle and put in a well and say look at me look what i've done it's 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 really about the the personal journey and and sharing that which is required for this type of a lifestyle and this type of a commitment to serving humanity when you maybe don't get to have the selfish pleasures that you know your friends or your your other people around you are, are experiencing. So, yeah, vulnerability—just really sharing the hardship and, and and you know diving into those levels of intimacy with you know with your friends and with your loved ones in a way that encourages openness and uh, encourages stepping beyond the comfort barrier of uh, who you are and who you are meaning the small talk. You know, really stepping into to sharing what your dreams and goals and fears are and and also the things that make you feel shameful the the things that make you feel unworthy of doing something in your life that seems kind of crazy whether that's starting a business or or even you know asking some girl out on a date you know if 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 you feel unworthy then obviously there's a level of shame underneath the surface that you're not dealing with. So really identifying that which makes you feel unworthy and then finding and identifying where that shame exists and and finding somebody to share that with so that you feel like you know yourself and that other people know you and that in that process you feel more worthy to to, to do whatever it is in life that you want to go do. And for me, it's... Serve and so I'm, I'm talking about the challenges that I face with within this journey of Jai Coffee House.
1: Great stuff and beautiful response. That's that's great. And Brene is fantastic. Definitely recommend that listeners check out her work. In fact, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's really great stuff. Darren Greatley is a really good piece of work. Tyson, how can our listeners get in touch with you and catch up with what you're doing in Jai Coffee House?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I don't like about corporations and nonprofits is, is that there's no access to the top so uh first and foremost i'll extend my uh my response you know my response whether that be email or skype to whoever is out there who wants to email me ask questions uh get advice send me an email uh, i would be more than happy to respond to it and 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 uh take some time you know i'm, I'm not just going to respond impersonally to it if you have questions or you need some advice or you have Uh, thoughts about some project, or even if you just want to share some personal aspect of your life, you know, I love that. I love getting those stories. And then I always spend the time to respond to, to people that are a part of what I call the Jai tribe. And I think that, you know, I'm never going to be too busy for those types of interactions because those are where the real situations in the real life, those personal interactions are are happening, and I, if if technology can be the the mechanism through which I can connect with people and humans and and share and and, and, and be vulnerable, then wonderful. Um, beyond that, if if Jai Coffeehouse is something that you want to support, uh, certainly share our campaign, share our uh, our project, uh, and the best way to do that is really to 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 not just share it on your page, which of course does help, but if there are specifically a handful of five friends or 10 friends that or 10 people that you know, that might be interested in whether it be you know philanthropy or social business or clean water or coffee, send them a personal email and, and just say, Hey, I, uh, I just listened to this really cool. I guess if you think it's cool, <laughs> um, uh, podcast on congruent life and, uh, yeah, I think you would enjoy it. Why don't you take a listen and, and that always is well, way more well received to get a personal email from somebody saying, "Hey I would highly recommend this to you. I think that this is something that you would like." So that would be a great way. and then, of course, you know we're running a fundraiser, so if you want a bag of coffee, you know the, the price of the coffee is you know it's inflated, but it's a fundraiser. Um, the challenge that we're facing here is, is that if we don't have cash flow to buy Ji or the JCFC's coffee, then they will be forced to sell it out to the middlemen. And we won't have coffee uh, for 2014 because they'll have sold it all. So we need as much cash flow to reserve coffee from the JCFC for for 2014. And that's why that we're running this fundraiser. Um, so the the more coffee we can get, the more we can reserve, the better we can serve this community. Uh, and so please, if, if you like coffee or if you have somebody that you know that is interested, uh, send a, send him or purchase a bag and send it to him as a gift or, or give it to him as a gift. I would really, really appreciate that.
1: Well, Tyson Adams, what a cool story! Uh, it's it's great to see the way that you're living your passion out into the world and and making stuff happen in a really interesting and novel way. Thanks for your passion and thanks for taking the time to share your story today on a congruent life.
0: Yeah, thank you, Andy. As well, it's been. It's been a pleasure.
1: I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Tyson Adams. You can find the show notes for this episode at acongruentlife.net slash 42 or acongruentlife.net slash Adams. Thanks again to those that have been subscribing and leaving reviews to the show. If you're enjoying what we're doing here, I'd really appreciate it if you take a quick moment to subscribe to A Congruent Life, which you can do at your preference of acongruentlife.net slash iTunes for iTunes or acongruentlife.net slash Stitcher for Stitcher. Thanks so much. Once again, thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. I really appreciate your support, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email
0: to feedback at
1: acongruentlife.net. See you next time.